Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. Christopher, we are so delighted that you are on right now. When you get done in a few moments, uh, Jim Doman, who I'm eager for you to meet, and a number of other people are going to be praying. These are all people who've been set free from uh, the, the, the chains of homosexuality. We celebrate that, what the Holy Spirit has done in their life. So Christopher Ewan, we want you to come on. We just welcome you. Uh, tell your story. We're eager to hear it. Well, thank you, Dr. Dr. Gala, for having me on. Um, I don't think I need to convince anyone that we are living in a world of infinite shades of gray, not just 50. And ambiguity, the less clear you are today, that's viewed to be a virtue. And this is the lie that we hear today, that your sexual desires define you, determine you, and should always delight you. But here's the good news, that we are on a collision course with sexual, the, the idolatry of sexuality, and the good news of Jesus Christ. As my life was on a collision course with the gospel, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. My parents raised me very traditional Chinese values, so we didn't own a Bible. But I had this secret that I kept hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret. I came out of the closet and I began living openly as a gay man in the gay community. So I, I began, um, I came out, I broke the news to my parents, and I told them I am gay. Well, through that crisis, my mother came to faith, and then my father did as well. I went the total opposite direction, wanted nothing to do with Christianity, wanted nothing to do with, um, with the Bible. You can go to the next slide. And, um, and with the, I, I, my parents tried to reach out to me. I spent, unfortunately, most of my free time in gay clubs. I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So unfortunately, I began experimenting with drugs. And I was not only doing drugs, but I was also selling drugs. And I began not, you know, I eventually was expelled from dental school. I moved from Louisville, where I was going to dental school, to Atlanta. And there I kept doing what I knew how to do best, which was have fun. To, to party. And I was not only selling drugs, but I was also supplying drugs. And this whole time, my parents had no clue that I was doing drugs, but they knew that my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to the love of Christ. I wanted nothing to do with it. They came to visit me one time in Atlanta, and I, I kicked them out. Before my dad left, he gave me his Bible. It was his very first Bible. And I told my dad, I don't want your Bible. Left it on, on my kitchen counter, walked out the door. As soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible, threw it in the trash. I wanted nothing to do with God. And it was just so obvious that I was hopeless. But my mom and dad committed not to focus upon hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over- Can I break oh, in? Mm -hmm. Can I break in? Yes. Now, I want to give you a little more time. Can you can you tell are you gonna tell the story of the train ride down to uh Louisville? Your yes. mother? Yes. Yeah. So my mom, she was going to end her life. Um, this was at the at the at the beginning. And you know, before I had I was still in Louisville, I had just come out. 
devastated my mom and she was going to end her life. My parents were going to divorce. They were, uh, my brother was doing his own thing. And so she decided to end her life and she uh, got a one-way Amtrak ticket from Chicago, where we used to live, to Louisville. And it was before she got on the train, she asked a minister, remember she wasn't a Christian, for a, a pamphlet on homosexuality. And in this pamphlet that she boarded on the train with, she didn't pack anything else. She read that pamphlet, which shared with her the gospel, that all of us are sinners. And yet in spite of our sin, the God of the universe who created us still loves us. And on this train, May 15th, 1993, my mother gave her life to Christ. But I went the total opposite direction. And it was just so amazing how my mom stepped on that train dead in her sins. And she walked off that train alive in Christ. And well, I was he a believer then? He was not a believer, but through her own complete transformation uh she be- he became a christian after realizing that you know uh when they were arguing she would just go off to her prayer closet and uh he became a follower of christ through the ministry of bible study fellowship just reading the word of god and he gave his life to christ i went the total opposite direction um and like i was saying they i was in you know so louisville and then i was in atlanta I, they came to visit me. I kicked them out. And, you know, the funny thing, Jim, is we hear the story today that Christian parents cannot love their gay children, that they have to throw the Bible away or become what Andy has become over the past several, several years that he, you know, the Bible is just a myth and we have to get rid of that. We don't actually follow that to love your gay child. But let me tell you, Jim, I had the exact opposite experience. My mom and dad were not Christian. They rejected me. It wasn't until they became followers of Christ. I mean, born again, completely transformed people. They knew they could do nothing other than to love them as God loved them, to love me as God loved me while they were powerless, while they were still sinners, Romans 5, 8, and while they were enemies. So, my dad gave me his Bible, uh, and I took that Bible, and I threw it in the trash. That's how much I despise God and his word. And it was just so obvious that I was hopeless. But my mom and dad committed not to focus upon hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over 100 prayer warriors from their church, from their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mom began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would spend hours every morning in her prayer closet on her knees, reading the Bible, crying out to God, interceding for me, for many, many others. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. 
this miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs. And I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. Uh, I, I started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in Atlanta City Detention Center. So, and Christopher, what, what academia? You were about to complete a degree, were you not? That's right. I was just three months before I was received my doctorate in dental school. I got expelled. And so I was, you know, just, I had it made. I, I had a great life a great future. And now I found myself among, among common criminals. A few days after that, I was walking around the cell block and I passed by this garbage can. I bent over, picked it up. And there was something on top of the trash and I picked, bent over, picked it up. And it was a Gideon's New Testament. Took the New Testament back to my cell, opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire gospel of Mark. But I was not thinking this is the word of God. I just thought I've got tons of time on my hands. But as many of you know that are watching right now, that what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper, but what we have in our Bibles is the very breath of God and is active, living, and sharper than any double-edged sword. Well, I was reading through the scripture and... I was being convicted of my sin, and I thought things going to get worse. Well, it did. I was called to the nurse's office, and I received the news that I was HIV positive. A few days after that, I was walking around the cell block, and I passed by, and um, I was laying in my bed, and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me, and someone had scribbled something. If you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. At the most hopeless point of my life, God was using words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Judah, to tell me that if God could have a plan for Judah in exile, in rebellion, he could have a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my idols, obviously drugs, but there were a few months he delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing in mind other idols. And there was just this one thing that I felt like I just couldn't let go of my sexuality. I went to a chaplain and I asked him his opinion. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. He even gave me a book explaining that view. So think about it. With much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you from a human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's 
indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions were a clear distortion of God and his word. I couldn't even finish that book. And I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of scripture looking for justification. I couldn't find any. So I was at this turning point. I either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous thing, such relationship by allowing my attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship by freeing myself from homosexuality, by not allowing my desires to control who I am, and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I followed Jesus. As the days and the months and the weeks of abstinence passed, I realized my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. That's true. But then as sinners, we sometimes add to God's truth. I added, so therefore, God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who might say, God loves me just the way I am. But after reading the Bible, I, I realized that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires. My identity is not gay, ex-gay, or even heterosexual for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. You know, before I become a Christian, I was under the impression that to become a Christian, I had to become a heterosexual. And what does that mean? I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. As a matter of fact, I was under the impression that the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if a man had opposite such attractions, that he would still need to flee temptation and resist sin. So heterosexuality, it is the right direction. It's just not the right goal. Because if you think about this, God God never, never commands us be heterosexual for I'm heterosexual, but neither does he say be homosexual for I'm homosexual. Instead, he goes, he wants the whole person and he says, be holy for I am holy. God does not just want to sanctify just your sexuality. He's going to sanctify your whole person. And so the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That does not go far enough. The opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or tempted. I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change it's not the absence of temptations. Jesus Christ himself, the Holy One, was tempted in every way, but he's without sin. So change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. As I was, because um, the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling or tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total, total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal another plan, uh, my, his plan for my life. 
Uh, and he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my call to ministry would remain the same regardless of location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle. And he shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left my prison sentence, I knew that I need to continue on in ministry after prison. If I was going to, I need to learn more about the Bible. So I called him, collected my parents, told them I think God's calling me to ministry. And then I asked them to mail me an application to Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application in a prison. I was really excited, fill it out until I realized I needed references. The only people I could persuade was a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate. Amazingly, I was accepted. I was released from prison July of 2001, and I started the very next month. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis 2007, received my doctorate of ministry, um, which I'd like to call that a doctorate of ministry, not a demon. I don't have a demon a doctorate of ministry um, in 2014. And Jim, I had the wonderful privilege of co-authoring a book with my mom called Out of a Far Country, A Geisha's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote this together. She, uh, she, I wrote chapter one. She wrote chapter two. I, she, she wrote all the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters. This is 130,000 copies in print. It's in eight different languages. There's a study guide in the back that this is so cool. We found out that several Christian schools are using this as a textbook. Who would have thought that our testimony is now being used as a textbook? But that's how the world works. They are slipping in these books, textbooks in pre-K. We need to catch up and no longer forfeit our responsibility to teach our kids about biblical sexuality. But how do we do that? I introduced this concept of holy sexuality that goes beyond not just heterosexuality, because actually that says nothing about how people who find themselves single ought to live. That's And so this helps us. Holy sexuality is chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. So my newest book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, Sex is Our Relationship, Shaped by God's Grand Story, helps to give us a robust theology of sexuality, not just God's no, but what is God's yes. And we're having more and more people that is, as Christians even, even after that re report about how pastors today are distorting God's truth, who historically have been Bible-believing pastors. Isaiah said it himself, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. So my book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, I wrote this for adults, and I realized that we need something uh, for teens, so we actually um, are, we have created this, this video series. We're really excited. And, and this is what we talked about, Jim, this past weekend. It's one of the only kind that focuses, it's a really high quality video series of it's 12 lessons, 36 videos, 270 minutes of content. And it's called the Holy Sexuality Project. Um, it's one of the first of its kind. There, there have been other videos 
uh, that have focused upon abstinence, what not to do, very important. But we can't stop there. That's only half of the picture. We need the whole picture that what is also God's yes. And this is, you can find it at holysexuality.com. This was a $1.2 million project that has animation, from, we had a team of 36 animators, illustrators, sound engineers, all custom stuff, many of them that did things for the Bible project. And this should cost about $200, $300, maybe even $500 per two-year license. Our donors are making it available for right now for $20. It really is an amazing cost because our donors are bored. We want everyone, whether you're a grandparent and you have grandchildren, you want to disciple your kids, or whether you're a parent or whether you're a new parent and you want to get ahead of the game to, to know how to do this right. Um, we're very, very excited about this project. Uh, but at the beginning, I talked about, you know, I probably have a few minutes left, but uh, uh, this very important concept of identity. And I've, I just want to kind of go over a few things about how important this is, because if there's one thing that Christians were missing, I believe, on how to best share the gospel Salvation in Jesus Christ to those who identify as LGBTQ, whatever, all that, that the alphabet soup. Just one second. Can you put back on that QR code? Yes. And give people a moment. Uh, put the QR code back on and folks get your phones on. And yes. uh, punch in where your camera Scan this. Most of you know how to do that. A little yellow line will probably click on that and you'll have it downloaded in an instant on your phone. So we're going to leave it on for another 15 seconds. So you and have if an you, opportunity to do that. Yep. And if you don't know what a QR code is, that's okay. You can just jot down holysexuality.com and uh, it'll take you to the same place. Sure. Go, go right ahead, my brother. So we, um, at the beginning of my book and in the beginning of this 12 lesson series, I, I give my testimony in lesson one to kind of break the ice, to have the teenagers and preteens to kind of see that I'm not just talking about this as an academic exercise or something that I studied or wrote a few books on. This is something that's real for me. So I give that. Um, but on the lesson two, I talk about identity, because if we don't get this right, we're even hearing today all this kind of almost nonsense that you can be gay and Christian. You can be like a Matthew Vines or Justin Lee, and you can get married to someone of the same sex, and it's okay. Or there's now this nuance where people can say you can be somehow gay and celibate and Christian. But who are we to mingle who we are in Christ with sin? The Bible never wants that. So we should never identify. If that's the... If there's one thing that I think Christians, we don't fully grasp is how the world and unfortunately Christians, pastors, Pastor Andy, I think his biggest error is he's viewing this as people, not sin. He does, he views sexuality as equivalent to person. I mean, it's a question of who am I? We all ask ourselves this question. For some, we answer that question, who am I, based on maybe friends or family or surroundings. Maybe some people might put their identity in their work. I am a lawyer. Or maybe sports, I'm a football player. Or I'm you know, a hobby, like I'm a gamer. Still others, like myself, 20 years ago, I identified as a gay man. Or you might have a 
a close friend, maybe it's your daughter or maybe it's your grandson who identifies as trans. But do these substitutes actually describe who we are or do they describe what we desire, what we think? And you might think, I mean, what's the big deal? I'm often accused of that, that, oh, I'm just quibbling over words. Aren't we just trying to parse out all these little minutia details? No. How we answer this question, actually all of us, how we answer that question, who am I, impacts how we think, the choices we make, and the relationships that we build. Our thoughts, our choices, our relationships are shaped in large part by how we answer this question, who am I, suggesting this close relationship between essence and ethics. What do I mean? Who we are, essence, impacts how we live ethics and vice versa is true. Who, um, uh, who, how we live impacts who we are. You could go back to the slide right before that. Uh, who we are, our essence impacts how we live ethics and how we live our ethics can impact who we are or have a wrong view of who we are. Thus, if you have a flawed personal ethic, you can you will have a flawed view of who you are and vice versa. If you have a flawed personal ethic, uh, a flawed view of who you are, you're going to have a flawed personal ethic. Take, for example, if there's a high school student that says, I am a partier, is that going to influence how this person lives? Of course. How about if a person says, I'm a lawyer? Will that impact the thoughts that she has, she's going to think about law. Or a person says, I'm a football player. Will that impact what the choices he makes? He's going to choose to play football in his free time. Or if a person says, I am a gamer, will that impact the relationship she builds? All of her friends are going to be gamers. Thus, personhood affects practice. Practice affects personhood. When I identified as a gay man years ago, before I knew Christ, my whole world was gay. It affected my thoughts, my choices, my relationships. As a matter of fact, all my friends were gay. There's, not, there's this misperception that there's such thing as an LGBTQ plus community. They're communities. They're not one monolithic group. All my friends were gay men. I knew some lesbian women, but the majority, my apartment complex was 90% gay men in Midtown Atlanta. I worked out at a gay at a gay gym. I bought my new, I bought my groceries at the gay Kroger. I bought my new sports car at a gay car dealer. My bookkeeper was gay. My housekeeper was gay. Everything and everyone around me affirmed what my flesh was saying. I am gay. You see, this is, this is not just quibbling over words at all. This is quibbling over what is true and real. This is actually pointing to who we are this we need to talk about this first with those who are confused about their identity those who don't know christ who those who are in the so-called lgbtq plus communities because how can we convince someone or talk to someone that this is sinful behavior when they don't even view it as behavior being gay no longer means this is who i am it means uh, no, lo no longer means what I feel, what I desire, what I do. It means this has become who I am. 
And when we make that mistake, it really is going to distort the choices we make, the thoughts that we have, and the relationships that we build. This subtle shift from what to who has created this radically distorted view of personhood. But I don't know of any other desire that we've made it who we are. For example, if you know someone who says, I am happy, we wouldn't say that's who you are, but how you feel, great. Or if a person says, I am depressed, that's not who you are, but what you feel now, even though, and here's, here's what I often hear people say, well, I didn't choose this, so it must be who you are. Well, depression, did people choose that? No. So does that mean that's who they are? Absolutely not. I know people who pray for depression to go away. People who say they're gay, they say, I prayed for God to take it away. He didn't, so I need to embrace it. People pray for depression to go away. Does that mean they need to embrace it? Absolutely not. Let's say a behavior, sinful behavior, someone who gossips all the time. You're a gossiper. That's not who you are, but what you do. So stop it. <laughs> or maybe a liar. That's not who you are. Or an adulteress. That's not who she is, but what she does. So we actually need to see that uh, that we that this whole understanding about sexuality, it is not who we are, but how we are. Sexuality is not who we are, but how we are. Actually, the term heterosexual, homosexual, even bisexual, it turns desire into personhood, experience into essence. So now experience is everything. Experience has become a God. What you feel is your God. So how do we understand human sexuality? We need to begin with proper theology, a proper understanding of who we are through God's eyes. In seminary, we call this theological anthropology. It's a big word, but it actually just means who we are through God's eyes. And who are we? We're created in the image of God, but we're also all fallen. And let me just finish with just some practical things of how we that under, how that begins when we begin there, how that will help us to reach out to those in the gay community first. Beginning with theological anthropology, it rebukes the arrogant condemner. You might have an uncle who frowns and looks down their nose, you know, the gay community, they're ruining our country. No, sin is ruining our country. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against principalities. It's a spiritual war. So we need to see that the gay community, they are not our enemies. And so, uh, so it rebukes the arrogant condemner. Second, it avoids a common incorrect diagnosis. And you might have heard something like this before, that the root cause of homosexuality are an absentee father, dominant mother, or abuse in one's childhood. And those definitely are influences, not my argument. My argument is that it's not the main root cause, because the root cause of sinful behavior is our sin nature. The biggest problem of humanity is not our upbringing. The biggest problem of humanity from for which Jesus Christ himself died is sin, the fall, Genesis 3. So we need to see that that is the core issue. We can't make our solution that because when we make that the wrong diagnosis, then we won't address the biggest issue, which is our sin nature. And guess what? Our sin nature has implications 
in a lot of things, including these secondary things like our upbringing. But we need to make sure that we're dealing with the primary issue. Sin is a problem. Jesus Christ is the answer. Because when we don't make it that, we're actually taking the Holy Spirit power away from true transformation. If we want transformation, we must deal with the biggest problem. Third, this addresses this whole heresy misunderstanding of side B so-called gay Christianity, this gay celibate Christianity, because what's the biggest problem? It really isn't just about what terminology you use. It is not affirming true repentance, thus transformation. People who say they're gay celibate Christians, they're not acting on it, which we think, okay, that's good in part, but they are still sinning in their mind, in their heart, and not repenting of the sinful desires. Jesus says, if a man looks lustfully at a woman, does he doesn't say, then just don't act on it. No, if a man looks lustfully at a woman, he's already committed adultery. So we need to see that God is calling us to full repentance. Repentance is actually equivalent to transformation. Sometimes people misunderstand and say, well, this person believes in repentance. This other person believes in transformation. The biblical understanding of repentance is transformation. There is no transformation apart from repentance. There's no repentance apart from transformation. The Bible views it as one, and we need that for the whole person, not just our actions, but our desires, our mind, it all. And lastly, beginning with theological anthropology that we're creating God's image, but we're also all fallen, it helps to answer the born gay question. See, there's all this misperception that somehow people are born gay. For one, the science has not proven that. Nothing's conclusive. But the Bible also doesn't say that either. The Bible does say we're born with a sin nature, not the same thing as saying that people are born gay. But the Bible says that uh, we're all born into sin. Therefore, we all need Christ. We all need uh, Jesus Christ to bring us the solution for our sin. And here's the interesting even Christians somehow believe this false teaching that people are born gay. God made them this way. Such a distortion of God's truth. But even though people may think that wrongly, you know what Jesus says? You must be born again. You may think you're born an alcoholic. You must be born again. You may think you're born a liar, a cheater. You must be born again. You may think you're born, you fill in the blank. You must be born again. The old is gone. The new is come. In Christ, you're a new creation. And, you know, there. some of you may not have heard a story like mine or like Jim Doman and others that are, but we are here. But, you know, that a guy who used to identify as gay and now no longer does. And that is a core part of my testimony, but actually that's not how I best summarize it. This is how I summarize it. I once was blind and now I see. I once was lost and now I'm found. I once did not believe and now I believe in the son of God and his name is Jesus. That's my testimony. Oh, wow, Christopher. That's pretty remarkable. Father, thank you for Christopher. 
Thank you for the day you first thought of him. The day he was born, the day he was born again, the day he was filled with your Holy Spirit, and the day he was catapulted into ministry. And I just pray ongoing protection around him, blessing upon him as he goes forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Christopher, I've got to ask you, and boy, what a great name you have, Christ Bearer, Bearer of Christ, Christopher. Uh, let me just give you some quick questions with fast answers, short answers, because you cover this, but I want to make sure people are processing a couple things because they get hit with these kind of things. The term gay Christianity or gay Christian can mean option one, that a person is still practicing uh, homosexual, homosexual acts, and they're convinced that that's biblically acceptable. The second one is they keep the title gay Christian, but they live celibate, but they like to keep the adjective gay. Have I defined it properly as two potential definitions? And then secondly, maybe this, maybe I just covered them, but you use this, you use the phrase side B. Most people aren't familiar with that. Side B and side A, which is common language now in the homosexual community. I don't use the word gay. I use the word homosexual, but um, what gives some clarifications. Gay Christian, what does that term mean? And you've already pretty well indicated why that's not our identity. Uh, but what does that mean generally as other people are using it? And then side A, side B that gets used in these kind of conversations. Yeah, generally, when people say that they're a gay Christian, they're making it like I was saying before who they are. And they also believe they can't change. So those are unbiblical categories, unbiblical ways to think of yourself that somehow Christ doesn't change us. That's that's so contrary to what the Bible is saying. So people who use these terms, gay, so-called gay, I always want to put, make sure I put those air quotes there because that's it's not a good it's not uh, it's an oxymoron. You know, it, you can't be a sinful Christian. You can't be an adulterous Christian. You can't. You're, you, I'm a Christian. That doesn't mean we don't struggle, that we're not tempted. Jesus was tempted, but we do not put our identity in sin or even our old self. So people who identify that way, um, and, and and I want to kind of focus, you mentioned the word celibacy. Um, in my book, I, I devoted a whole chapter on that concept, because whereas before celibacy and chastity, abstinence kind of meant the same thing, it's morphed into this newer category that's taken a very Roman Catholic feel, that it means celibacy isn't just that you don't have sex, um, which is what single people are called to, or, you know, while they're single, when I say call, I'm not saying lifelong. It's just, this is what I'm called to now, now, but celibacy has now become almost exclusively, uh, especially in this conversation, uh, around sexuality and side by side B to be this so-called lifelong chosen vocation. That's not biblical. That's purely a human tradition grounded in uh, medieval church history, not scripture, not the Bible. Uh, the Bible calls people who are single just to be chaste. So in a way, they're not acting on it, but they are still believing that they can have the desires. As a matter of fact, they have created this new category called a so-called spiritual friendship, which is essentially gay marriage minus the sex. That's still sin. And pastors are encouraging this. 
Uh, I know in big cities where they will have communities of so-called uh, side B gay celibate Christians, and they're living together. And usually it's give them a few years and then they will just say, I, you know, let's stop playing this game. These two men that are same-sex attracted, call, they call themselves gay celibate Christians. They're having this, you know, spiritual friendship. And then they eventually just say, you know what, we're just getting married. We're not playing the charades anymore. Um, so all of it is sinful. Can a person be gay and a Christian? Well, not for long because the Holy Spirit then will convict them and transform them. So the reality is all this terminology, we just need to throw it to the side. I never liked labels. And if I'm going to use one label, Jim, it's going to bear the name of Christ. Like you said, it's just miraculous. My mother, who wasn't a Christian, named me Christopher. And yet when I got older, I always went by Chris. I went by Chris Yuan. I did all my parties, you know, in the gay community. I sold drugs, Chris Yuan. I was the big producer and, you know, whatever. Then when I came, went to prison, I realized coming to Christ, my name meant in, in Greek, Christos, Christ, Pharaoh mean bear or to carry, to bear Christ. I'm a bearer of Christ. That when I walked out those prison doors, I got a, I had to sign on the dotted line and you're supposed to sign your full name. Well, I signed Christopher. I remember it clear as day on the dotted line to get out of prison. I, I signed off Christopher and I paused because I realized that's who I am. That's who I'm called to be, a bearer of Christ. Before eternity, God knew my name, and he stamped on me his name through my mother, who wasn't even a Christian, Christopher. She liked that name for whatever reason, and that's my name, Christopher. So that's why I go by Christopher now. I don't go by Chris. I don't want to take the cross out of my name. Christopher, bearer of Christ. And if I'm going to have any label, it's just going to be, I'm a follower of Jesus. I am a Christian, nothing less, nothing more. I get asked a question. I'm sure you've been asked many, many times. And the question is, uh, my niece or my nephew or my daughter uh, identifies homosexual and they're getting married uh, to the same sex. And they've invited me to the wedding. Should I, as a follower of Jesus, go? And I've said consistently, no, you can love them, care for them reach out to them, include them in your lives, but do not go to an event where your attendance presumes the support of sin ever, that or in any venue like that. What, right. what say you? You're exactly spot on because uh, the Bible begins with a wedding. Genesis 2, the Bible ends in a wedding. Revelation 22, the first miracle of Jesus is where? At a wedding. There is, And I could go on and on. Ephesians 6, Ephesians 5, it gives what is the actual real purpose, ultimate, what all marriages between man and woman, they actually should point to. And that is the eschatological reality of Christ in the church on that last day. So we should never trivialize something that God does not trivialize. And, you know, what's the purpose? I think Christians really need to think about this. What's the purpose of attending a wedding? I mean, is, is it to celebrate? Yes. But actually, I see something much more important. Our presence at a wedding should be that we are witness, that we are agreeing to hold, help hold, help this couple hold to their vows. Jim, it, it's so obvious today. There is, there is an attack on marriages today, and we need to fight for marriages. I cannot help a gay couple hold to their vows because those vows 
God does not honor. So my presence is, yes, it's as, as a sign of celebration and agreement, but it should be that anywhere that we go to, we're agreeing that we're going to help this couple. We're going to walk with them through the ups and downs of life to help them hold to their vows. So I would not go, but I could be present for the whole weekend. Like if it's my family, I could go to the family reunion. I just would not go to the ceremony. And so we need to hold and and communicate. This is being full of grace and full of truth that this is someone that I love and I could be there for the family. That's, you know, people are getting together for that, but I won't be present for the actual ceremony that they're pretending to do before God, but God does not honor it. In Ephesians chapter five, when Paul speaks of a husband and wife, he suddenly switches and he says, I'm talking about a mystery here. You think I'm talking about husband and wife. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And every time a husband and wife comes together in marriage, that is to be an order or an appetizer or a picture or an image of the main course, which is to come later. We've never yet seen capital M marriage. The first capital M marriage we're going to see is when Jesus and the, and the people of God come together. And we know he knew we could not visualize it. It's a mystery, Paul wrote, and it is. So he put on earth, small m marriage, a male and a female. So we could have some grasp of the oneness we're going to enjoy. And, and so when we bring together people of this so-called same sex, complete violation of the principle of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, and the Hebrew scriptures. We don't have time to go into that, but Christopher speaks on that as well as I do. And if we support a so-called same-sex wedding, there is no such thing. But if we support it, we are saying we disregard the scripture. We have no respect for the most powerful imagery and most sacred thing God ever established on earth as imagery of when the people of God and the Son of God come together as one. No Christian could conscientiously support attending uh, such an event. Christopher? I uh, want them to know how to reach you. Give us your website once again. And then, folks, he has a 12, I want to say it again, 12-part video series animated. I mean, this thing would cost over a million dollars. He was able to get it for a little bit less than that, praise God, and the funds came in. But what this is an animated series that could hold attention to the family. I've seen bits and pieces of it. It is stunning. So tell us again how they get it. I, thought, I think you said $20 that they can license and watch it this 12-part series, and then how do they do that? Give us your website again. Yes, this uh, the Holy Sexuality Project is at holysexuality.com. Really easy to remember, holysexuality.com. And um, you can go there and you can actually get a sample lesson if you'd like, sign up for a sample lesson and you will watch lesson two, which is on identity. And But there's also a parent guide that goes with it. And some of you watching right now might be thinking, oh my goodness, I don't know where to start. I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I'm sweating just thinking about it. I'm nervous. I'm scared. You know, all you need to know is how to press play. Read the parent guide. You read the, there's a kickoff question. You watch a 10 minute video, press play, watch a 10 minute video. After that, we give you four to six questions to ask after that, that kind of discusses what we just went over. Then you watch a second 10 minute video, go over some more questions, then watch a wrap up video. So the, 
the videos, each lesson is about 23 minutes broken up into smaller chunks, because as we know, teenagers, we want to keep their attention. And so this is a good way to do that. So it's not just kind of going on for a whole hour. Kids wouldn't be able to handle that. But total about 45 minutes, three videos, discussion questions, or about 45 to 60 minutes per lesson going through this. Um, and ultimately, this is this is very important that this lesson is very much Christocentric. It lifts up the supremacy of Christ. Sometimes our approaches can be sort of human-centered. You need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this, and that, that kind of then focuses then on me, what I need to know and do. I finish every lesson with this. Now go and follow Jesus. And I clearly explain what that means in, in several of the lessons. That means deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. So that's very important. It's not a me course. I don't know if you're familiar with Jen Hapmaker, a, a former person uh, whose husband was a pastor and she was involved with some home, I don't know, those those movies on those home kind of cable shows. She's all gay affirming now. She just came up with a course and you know what it's called? It's for so-called LGBT to affirm your kids as a parent. When you know what it's called, Jim, it's called me course. So appropriately named. At, at least I, I, I'm glad that she was honest. This is a, a, a course focused upon person. It's all about me. That's her course. We didn't make that same mistake. We wanted to be all about Christ. It needs to be, this is a Christ course to help our kids to see that this, although they're reading and listening about sexuality, it's about how do we follow Christ and how do we allow Christ to sanctify us and transform us. So go to holysexuality.com and you get more information there. My ministry is just at ChristopherYuan.com, uh, both of those as well. And here's my socials. Uh, thanks, Alan. Um, but you can follow me there. I'm planning to do some more YouTube videos dispelling myths like is being gay genetic. Also kind of questions like uh, the word was wrongly inserted uh, in the Bible in 1946. So I'm using a lot of what I learned in, in Bible college and seminary and Greek and Hebrew exegesis theology that I spent years studying and making it kind of understandable just for the lay person and specifically for the high school teenager and using videos. And this will all be free on YouTube. So I've got some different projects going on right now. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.